Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Ghastly Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And to celebrate the beginning of the podcast, we thought what better to look at than haunted houses. And we're going to step into a six part series devoted to six different films, all of which center on haunted houses. So the first of these episodes, we'll look at The Old Dark House, which is a 1932 film by James Whale. I've got a funny feeling something dreadful might happen to us. You don't seem to understand. We may be cut off, shut up in this house. So it was directed by James Whale, who obviously is famous for his other horror films, including probably most famously Frankenstein. And it also reuses some cast members from Frankenstein, probably the most famous being Boris Karloff, the legendary Boris Karloff. As Morgan, who is mm-hmm. who is the butler. Slightly typecasting. I but- think I heard something <laughs> about this, as in Karloff always got relegated to these roles where he was sort of his physicality was kind of the the thing that was put first he has these very thick eyebrows as well it's very strong brow yeah exactly he had an amazing face that you could just accentuate in all these different ways so what's the what's the kind of focus of this film joanna so the film is about a couple who are driving in a torrential rain in rural england and decide to knock on this titular old dark house to ask for help from the owners for somewhere to stay for the night and when they arrive they find that the owners of the house are two siblings so the femme family and they're not exactly the most welcoming of hosts but in the end they do say yeah yeah okay you can stay and so it's them and their mysterious mute butler morgan and it seems like that's it that's the only people who live in the house. But obviously, as we will later find out, that's not the case. There are some secrets. Nice. Okay. So what we first witnessed with the film is is the most stressful drive I think I've ever seen, where it's pelting down with rain and there's a mm. landslide and it cuts off their access to Shrewsbury. They're heading to Shrewsbury, right? And there's Penderel, their friend, in the back yeah, of the yeah. car, and he's just kind of singing, singing in the rain. And he is being kind of useless. And to be honest, if I was, if I was in the car as well, I probably would have punched him in the face because I can't deal with that. I kind like Penderel, though. I think Penderel's the best character. No, he, okay. Like he's an annoying man, but. He definitely uh, redeems himself, I think. But just the first impression, I think, I, I was just, I was not having it, but. Exactly. They, they've got a soaked map. They have no idea where they're going. And then they rock up at the Femme house. I always thought it must be so stressful in like the 1930s. If you got lost like that, you can't just call someone or (laughs) use the internet to figure out where you are. You're just there. No, exactly. And in the middle of the night in a torrential rain and you're just stuck with it. For me in particular, I find it hard enough to navigate without my phone as it is I think I, I, I've got this problem where I don't plan where I'm going in advance and I think phones are quite bad at giving us that sense of security that we don't have to plan where we're going we can just kind of rock up we've got google maps we can we can find our way en route whereas I think in this situation that would never be the case I mean I've heard stories uh, about you trying to navigate with a phone before so I, I can believe you when you say that even then it's another not that time maybe <laughs> 
<laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah, we'll move on. That can remain undisclosed for now. So they get to the Femme House. Um, Morgan opens the door, who's Karloff, and you kind of see this slit as, as the door opens and mm-hmm. his face is on the other side and they're let in after he shuts the door on them once and then they, they, they knock again, he opens, they, they enter and then they meet Horace Femme, don't they? They do indeed. And Horace is, Horace actually in a way I think also kind of recalls, I kind of expected Horace to be almost a supernatural figure himself because he's got these very he's very, mm. this very gaunt he's face. very gaunt. He's very pale he, he looks almost kind of like vampire like to me and yeah it turns out that he's just this elderly dickhead he greets them in this kind of amazing way where he just sort of comes gliding down the stairs and the camera kind of zooms in and then i think one of my favorite scenes in the whole film is when he takes them mm. to the fireplace and he he shows them a glass bowl and a load of flowers and he says oh my sister was on the point of arranging these flowers and then he just picks up the bouquet and then just tosses them in the flames um and it's never mentioned again and it's just quite an iconic moment and everyone's just like okay (laughs) i think this is this is something i really like about the film i really like how much of the humor still translates today i wanted to say how modern the sense of humor is but i think that would be kind of reductive Mm. in the sense that I don't think it's necessarily ahead of its time. It just shows that certain things remain funny. Mm. I think it's nice. Even at a distance of 80 years. Honestly, I think it's it's kind of miraculous in that sense because of course like <laughs> you feel like there's such a big barrier between you and the past the whole time. But the fact that you can just kind mm-hmm. of you can kind of slip slip into the same sense of humour, those kind of very absurdist moments. Sure. And that's that's definitely all over this film. We saw your lights and wondered if you'd be kind enough to give us shelter for the night. You see, it's quite impossible to go on. I see. How awkward. How very awkward. What is it? What do they want? Allow me to introduce my sister, Miss Rebecca Femme. How do you do? do? What are they doing here? What do they want? How do you do? What do they say? What do they want? What are they doing here? What's all the fuss about? What? Okay, we really need to get to Rebecca though, don't yes. we? Because um, we haven't said enough about this character, and honestly, <sighs> such a funny um, character. no beds. That line alone is is no seared into my memory. <laughs> she moves along. She kind of scuttles, doesn't she? She's she's very different from Horace. Horace kind of glides, but um, Rebecca kind of scuttles. Yeah, as the older sister, and she she comes down the stairs. She's immediately cr- quite hostile, and I think it's also it's interesting how Morgan seems almost mm. more aligned to her rather than to Horace in terms of who he's listening to, who's he, who he's obeying, because mm. he has to, he looks at her on multiple occasions when um, Horace gives him an instruction and he has to look to her for, for kind of reassurance and then she'll give a nod. And, and she seems to be the one that's in control. And of course, she goes on her kind of small tirades about how ungodly mm. her family were, the femmes, and how, how ungodly Margaret Waverton, uh, played by Gloria Stewart, is yes. when she's when she's dressing into to her kind of <laughs> silk gown for the uh, for the evening, and she she kind of prods her, doesn't she, in the uh, in the chest, mm. and she talks about how she's how she's ungodly and how she's she's full of sin. And yeah, and, Margaret and, was doing like literally nothing. Margaret was just getting undressed, and then it just prompts this tirade. I think, which definitely says something about. Rebecca's um, 
view of what women should be and what women should do. And I find it very interesting as well that she first begins by looking at Margaret's gown and saying, oh, well, it's very nice, but it'll all rot away one day. And then immediately moving on to Margaret's actual body and her own self. And um, at the same time, we're getting these really strange distorted shots of the mirror, aren't we? And Mm. you see Rebecca's face kind of reconstituted in the glass as this sort of kind of deformed, almost kind of of Mm goblin-esque face. And eventually... Rebecca, she moves on. And then there's a great moment when Margaret pulls open the, yeah. the window to kind of air the place out. It must be incredibly musty from the looks of it. It's it's sort of such a cluttered room. It's full of kind of Victorian memorabilia and that kind of thing. But she kind of flings open the window and then you get this enormous, almost mm-hmm. comical gust of wind that just throws everything into even greater disarray. So it's just hardly the the kind of shelter that she was wanting that evening. I think that's the most iconic moment of the mm. film, personally, that one shot. Because <laughs> there's something so, in the physicality of it, there's something that's still comedic about it. Yeah. Despite the horror aspect. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I think there is something, there's kind of like a knowing... Mm almost kind of campy aesthetic to it oh I think. yeah that's de- it's definitely it's definitely camp I think that's yeah that's a really good point and we only see that kind of come out more as the film progresses oh, what a night I thought you were never going to open that door bye <laughs> there must have been a reservoir bust or something <laughs> Anyhow, before we knew where we were, something had fallen down and smashed the car in. <laughs> and then, of course, they're not the only visitors that night. You have Gladys Duquesne and her partner, her companion. He, it's the industrialist, Sir William Porterhouse, who's, who's they're definitely more comical characters, aren't they, when they arrive? And they're quite an odd couple. You've got the, you've got the showgirl, you've got the industrialist also kind of wealth, wealthy aristocrat sort of. I thought it was convincing though. I, I liked their relationship. Mm. I thought they had chemistry. I thought that there was something quite nice about it and it there seemed to be like a genuine mutual yeah. respect. And I also liked Gladys's character in that, um, well, I guess kind of in a rebuke to the things that Rebecca was saying to Margaret. She's kind of, she's very confident, um, kind of, somewhat sexual mm. character who pursues romantic mm. relationship mm. with Penderel and she kind of she knows what she wants and she has an emotional complexity mm. to her as well and I thought I just thought Gladys was quite a fun character to have around yeah yeah I agree I agree and it's interesting her relationship with Porterhouse is very much uh it, it, it's a pragmatic relationship. She mm. she gets money from him, doesn't she? And yes. and she she enjoys his company. Um, and like she says, she like she he comes back from his his busy day at work, and he he sort of tells her all these small little anecdotes about his successes. And uh, and she's there to listen to him and 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 and, and kind of uh, bolster him up, mm. I guess, as well in his confidence. And so it's quite an interesting little symbiosis that they have. But then with Pendrel, she she experiences more of a, of an attraction, I guess. Mm. And, and I like the fact that even in having this agency, she wasn't portrayed as some kind of like conniving, sneaky character who's trying to trick them. I like the fact mm. that she's sympathetic. Mm. No, for sure. 
and she really upsets Rebecca. You can just see Rebecca's Aww. face just getting increasingly <laughs> annoyed when Gladys starts doing like dances in Pendrel's oversized <laughs> shoes that he lends her because it's soaking wet outside and she needs some new shoes. And yeah, you can just see Rebecca getting increasingly rattled by all these kind of sinful presences in the house. But there are a couple of other people in the house, aren't there? Yes, there are um, not just two other mysterious individuals, one of whom Rebecca is upfront about, but who she still wants to keep hidden away. And the other whom is a secret until the very end. Mm. And so one of them is actually Sir Roderick Fem, mm. who is the father of the Fem siblings of Rebecca and Horace. And the other is their mysterious hidden brother, Saul, who is a pyromaniac and who needs to be shut away for his own good. I thought that was very funny. Mm. The concept that he just can't be prevented from yes. setting fire to things. And so he therefore needs to be locked away rather than just sent away to go and live somewhere else. Yeah, it's got this real repressed <laughs> element to it, doesn't it? Mm. Um, the house in itself occupies, of course, there are multiple floors to it. And Saul is locked away on the on the very top floor. And, and he's almost like a repressed element, isn't he? Some kind of... Yeah. I, I don't know, like an id, perhaps a sort of primal. Yeah, maybe kind he of represents some kind of like passion. Mm. Because obviously, as you can tell from the way Rebecca and Horace act, they are definitely people who kind of not only actively repress passion, but also frown upon it mm. when it's not being repressed by other people. Mm, mm. I'd say that Horace is. Horace is definitely under the thumb of his sister. Um, mm. I think she definitely takes the lead in terms of the kind of Victorian sensibilities. Um, but then she has a real kind of disrespect for her father as well. Sir Roderick, who's mm. upstairs bedridden. Um, and through Sir Roderick, when at one point in the film, Margaret and her husband go upstairs to, to, to see basically what the hell's going on. They find his room, don't they? And then yeah. he kind of discloses that the Femmes are a family that have been beset by madness at one point um mm. misfortune i guess you could say um two of the two of his children died in their 20s didn't they um yes it really did it, it made me think of the um the house of usher for sure um mm. the edgar Allan poe um story and that sense of a kind of a corrupt family that's sort of it's 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 kind of on its last legs it's it's coming to an end it's of the old world and it's it, yeah it's full of corruption and and it carries this kind of this heritage of 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 evil in a way but i guess not so pronounced in this in this film apart from if you were to look at it from rebecca's perspective where she she brands her entire family as sinful and she kind of looks with disdain at the at the mm. name of of femme yeah this is definitely a idea of family like almost like generational trauma that kind of haunts particularly Rebecca's kind of way of mm. seeing the world and I think as well the house kind of obviously represent as a kind of heirloom represent where her father lives and mm. where her hidden brother lives kind of like being in the house kind of perpetuates this feeling of being cursed mm. almost mm. but she's very much she's She's, she kind of understands her position in it. She she knows that she doesn't mm. seem keen to escape it. She's she remains with it, even though she 
she sees it as as stained or or soiled in some way. Mm, that's the interesting um, part, and I think that's the sad aspect of the femme siblings in that mm. they acknowledge the trauma of their situation and yet they just kind of sink into it. They don't make any kind of effort to reject it. And indeed, mm. when people arrive who do kind of represent an alternative, they just immediately reject them instead. Mm. Mm. We kind of encounter the femmes in, in a place where they could just go on forever in this mm. sort of perpetual cycles of just feeding their brother every day. But then, of course, the visits disrupt it. And, and the storm disrupts it as well, because Morgan likes to drink when there are storms. Mm. When Morgan drinks, he kind of becomes this uncontrollable figure who suddenly starts attacking Margaret. For sure. And and there are so many moments where she she just feels so uncomfortable visibly mm. uh, when he looks at her and he just tries to serve her water um, at the dining room. At the dining table, sorry. And she kind of covers her glass and looks up at him in just this kind of just yeah. this, this terrified moment. And he, he moves on to the next person. But there are all these moments where she's 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 driven to be very uncomfortable around him. And of course, he does come for her at one point. He he starts to chase her around. I think this is what makes him scary. Like there's this idea that someone who is already deviant in this way of being like being mute, for example, um, and kind of strange looking that like it's made more terrifying to Margaret because of that aspect of him. It's Morgan, he's there at the bottom of the stairs. Yeah, it's just all these kind of strange little things where the femmes know that there's this extraordinary kind of like unbridled force just kind of lurking under the surface. Um, there are all these kind of elements that are just very much on the on the edge of just spilling over and they work together because Morgan goes up and he frees in the same kind of mechanical way. He goes up to the top floor, he unlocks the door and he he lets Saul out and then... First of all, we see Saul's hand emerge on the the rail, don't we? And it's such a weird shot, honestly. And it, it it is weirdly disturbing just seeing that hand there, just kind of resting there. And then we see we see Morgan's face, and then you kind of assume, okay, it's Morgan's hand. But then Morgan keeps coming down the stairs, and then you realize, okay, mm -hmm. it, it, it can't be Morgan's hand. It's, it's, like, it's wait, 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 wait. It's Saul's <laughs> hand. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying he's free um but then it just kind of stays there for a bit there's this moment mm. when morgan is being bundled away uh an attempt to kind of you know control him to restrain him mm. and that takes about three minutes and then there you know we see that happening but then there's this weird kind of suspension of time where the hand of saul is still on the banister mm. and everyone's just looking everyone runs back after trying to to do away with Morgan and then they're just looking up at this hand and then it kind of resumes again. Yeah. But it only resumes I, again when Pendleton's, uh, when Pendrel is there and then they have this really unsettling interaction, don't they? 
Yeah, so there's this moment of almost kind of like a bait and switch where for a second you start to suspect, hang on, is Saul actually this terrifying Mm. character that the Femmes have made him out to be? Because he has this interaction with Roger where he basically says, they've been keeping me locked up against my will. I'm not a pyromaniac. I don't Mm. understand why they're doing this to me. Please help me. That did throw me actually. For a moment, you do think, oh, oh my gosh, maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe the Femmes have been villains this whole time. Mm. Well, they kind of are villainous in a way. But Yeah, there's there's a lot of unanswered questions, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I sure. think it's the difference between the idea of whether Saul should be repressed and locked away or whether he shouldn't. And so there's this idea for a moment, where, which does kind of make sense of the rest of the film, where you think, oh, so the femmes have been repressing him and keeping him locked away and they didn't even need to. And mm. I think the fact that in the end it does turn out that he he was a pyromaniac and he mm. is going to start attacking people mm. kind of changes the implications, mm. I think. For sure. And I think this is this this moment when he was interacting with Roger was probably the, the most uncomfortable part of the film for me mm. when I watched it the first time because I, I was genuinely like, well, first of all, I thought, okay, Poor Saul. Yeah. <laughs> He's just been locked away for no reason by his crazy siblings. But then you realise, okay, yes, Saul is very much terrifying. And he sits down with um, Pendrel. I keep wanting to say Pendet- Pendleton for some <laughs> reason. He sits down with Pendrel at the table and they're, they're first opposite, but then Saul kind of scuttles over and sits closer. And... Mm. He's already holding a knife that he found kind of like on the floor in the detritus of the dinner that they were eating earlier. They got knocked off in, in a struggle with um, with Morgan. Mm. And there's this really strange atmosphere of, okay, I don't know what Saul's going to do here. Um, they're just talking and Saul's chatting about his obsession with flame and how he's done a study on flame <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and you, you just, and, and poor Pendrel, you see the sweat breaking out on his brow and he's, and he's thinking, like, Oh no, never mind. He really is a pyromaniac. <laughs> yeah. And he's doing his best to just kind of entertain him as well as distract him from the fact that Margaret and Gladys are both hiding in the cupboard, which is just adjacent to the dining mm. room area. Yeah. And <laughs> It's so it's it's very it's actually very comical how you see the the just the, the moisture just breaking out on his brow and almost mm. dripping because he's trying he's sort of eyeing up a, um, a, a a poker and he's thinking of whether to to grab it and the problem is that Saul has kind of already predicted that he'd do this and then there's a fight and then what happens then? Penderol gets knocked out and Saul starts setting fire to the place and then Roger wakes up again so just that brief moment of tension that he's just going to burn to death while he's asleep but luckily Penderel wakes up and then he has a fight with Saul and Saul fall they both fall off the kind of staircase landing and Saul dies and Roger survives for some reason yeah yeah, it's quite it's a bit which mm, is all very well and good yeah they kind of they fell off in the same way from the same distance and maybe some trick of the way he landed. Maybe he just, yeah, a little bit, just a, just a little, a little. It's a little bit of movie magic, of, but of magic there. Um, 
Well, Roger's an interesting character in the sense that he's kind of characterised as he went to the war, he's a veteran of the war, and since the war he's been a bit adrift. Uh, he doesn't enjoy making money, he can't be bothered to make money. Um, he sees himself as quite an idle, purposeless mm. person. But then his relationship with Gladys, as as quickly as it materialised, is giving him the sense of purpose that he didn't have in his his life before. And, and that's the, the resolution of the film, I suppose. Yeah. And then obviously, of course, the ending of the film, kind of the emotional climax is, of course, when Roger wakes up from his injuries and miraculously isn't dead. He obviously, from the experience, having <laughs> come so close to death, he decides to ask Gladys to marry him. And that's the end of the film. And mm, yet... Right there. They've known each other right for about five hours. But, but, that, but it's love, you know? Yeah. That's how much, that's how patient they are for it. each yeah, other. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> There's a bit when, I remember when he's he's kind of struggling with Saul and then Gladys is, is locked up in the in the cupboard, you know, trying to hide from Morgan and mm. Saul with uh, Margaret. And she just goes, oh, I, I love him so oh. much. Like, I need him to be okay, you know? Yeah. And then when Pendrel's lying on the floor, I can't remember if it's Gladys or Margaret, but one of them yells, he's alive, he's alive. And it's definitely an echo of, I mean, mm. the, the the famous line, it's alive <laughs> from Frankenstein by the same director. Tell me if that's a coincidence No, I think that not. makes sense. I think that would probably have been intentional. He's alive! What? He's alive, I tell you. He's alive. And that's one of the the things that you can kind of notice about this film is that it's it's very much playing with its own structure and format quite a lot. Um, mm. It's making these kind that's of... That's what I think is so interesting. It's kind of not quite to the extent of The House on Haunted Hill, but it is still a comedy mm. horror that does kind of perhaps parody certain aspect of the mm. horror genre and I think that's so interesting because obviously it's one of the, it's still one of the earliest mm. horror films and obviously it's directed by James Whale who is a crucial part of constructing what these conventions of the horror yeah. genre are I mean so he's he kind of them. looking back at his own work and kind of messing yeah, around it's interesting. a bit it's fun interesting with it. that even at that time there was still there was still a kind of an idea of what horror was um, I think I kind of mm. I think I'd overlook that quite a lot and I, I assume that we've only achieved that sense of playing with tropes and and playing with 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 genre at this point you know or even with you know sort of Wes Craven and that kind of stuff you get you 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 started getting mm. that kind of metatextual um playing with the genre I- ideas coming out as early as the, the um the old dark house 1932 yeah yeah and so that's what I think makes this film such a fun watch still. The fact that there's so many points. So like we were saying earlier about the humour, for example, and also this kind of like self-awareness, I think make it still a really enjoyable watch, even eight years on from when it was made. 
Thank you so much for joining us for the first ever episode of the Ghastly Podcast. Next week, we're going to be looking at the camp classic from 1959, The House on Haunted Hill. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.